Well, many of you know John Bunyan, famous author, born in England, 1628, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the well-known Christian allegory. But do you know about John Bun? <laughs> but do you know about John Bunyan's story, about his life, how he came to faith in Christ in his mid twenties, joined a church, and within four years was preaching to large crowds as a lay minister. In his biography, he says, I went in chains to preach to those in chains and carried in my conscience the fire I tried to persuade them to be aware of. If you know history at all, Bunyan's life coincided with the restoration of Charles II and the freedom of worship that separatists had enjoyed for 20 years was over, which meant those not conforming with the Church of England were arrested and were imprisoned, Bunyan included. So by 1661, 33 years old, he sat in jail for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what you need to understand about him sitting in jail is that he had options. In fact, Judge Wingate was inclined to release him at the trial, let him go, but before sentencing him, Bunyan said to Wingate, I just want you to know, Judge, that if you release me today, I'm only going to go ahead and preach again tomorrow. So the judge had no choice, put Bunyan in prison for the next 12 years of his life. And you need to know, prison is not easy. In his biography, he says, the parting from my wife and children has often been to me as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I'm too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should often bring to mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants my poor family was likely to meet should I be taken from them. He said, oh, the thought of the hardships would break my heart to pieces. And again, in the midst of that suffering, Bunyan could have been released at any point. If he just said, I won't preach the gospel anymore. And yet, he remained in prison because he knew. The gospel was worth it, even if it meant suffering, hardship, persecution, and even death, if necessary. Now, why am I telling you this? Because that choice, believing the good news of the gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises who is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the Old Testament priests, because he offers a better sacrifice, mediates a new covenant, and secures an eternal salvation, is at the very heart of the book of Hebrews. Because if all of that is true, then it's worth holding fast to your confession. It's worth persevering to the end, knowing that you will receive the reward of eternal life in God's eternal heavenly city forever. Another way to say that, right thinking about Jesus leads to right living for Jesus, which includes persevering in the faith and not falling away, which is the main message of the book of Hebrews. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10. I recognize that's not Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to give you the background first. So we're going to start in Hebrews 10. It's on page 1006, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Title of my sermon this morning, Jesus is Greater, Three Points, Background of Hebrews, Theology of Hebrews, and the Application of Hebrews. As you're turning, let me jump right into number one, the background of Hebrews. My plan this morning is to give you the background information of Hebrews and then walk through the book so that you can see exactly how that gets played out. So I'm going to start with just a few questions. Number one, who wrote the book of Hebrews and when did they write? It's a great question. Here's the short answer. Only God knows. So we're not sure. But what we do know is that it wasn't 
Paul or any of the other apostles who wrote Hebrews because chapter 2 verse 3 says the author was not an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus. So it had to be somebody who came after that generation. Options include Barnabas because he's a Levite, so a man who knew a ton about the priesthood. Could also be Apollos who was from Alexandria. So he was very eloquent in his communication. That would fit really well with the book of Hebrews. Or it could be Clement of Rome, whose knowledge about Rome itself, the the system, the law, all of those details is very appealing. But who is the author? God only knows. With regard to timing, it's most likely written in the early 60s, so after the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, but before the 70 AD destruction of the temple, if it would have been written after that, they would have highlighted the reality that the temple was destroyed. It's also probably before Nero's persecution, which started in 64 AD, because that's when people were actually martyred for their faith. So I'm guessing it's somewhere between 60 and 64 A.D. Question number two, what prompted the author to write the book of Hebrews? Well, if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, the readers who are in Rome have already experienced pretty significant persecution. Look what the author says, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Their stuff is being stolen and destroyed, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, of perseverance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Because, verse 39 says, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Then the author immediately appeals to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So what prompted the author to pick up his pen and write the book of Hebrews? Well, it's the fact that these believers, specifically Jewish Christians, are being persecuted. Now, as I said, none of them are yet martyred, but the writing is on the wall that it's only going to get worse. And since they're Jewish believers, they're tempted to return to Judaism for a number of reasons. Reason number one. To avoid being persecuted. You see, you need to understand that in Rome, Judaism is legal. So if they revert back to Judaism, they're not only not persecuted, but they're actually protected by the legal system. So first motivation, avoid being persecuted. Second motivation, appeal to what you already know. So the Mosaic law. The Old Testament high priest, the Old Covenant, the blood of bulls and goats, the sacrificial system, they knew that all really well. So revert back to what they already know. So then what's the author's goal in writing? Well, you see it right here on the overview outlined under purpose. So if you flip your bulletin over, purpose. He's writing to encourage these dear believers to not turn away from their faith in Christ back to the Mosaic Law and the Old Covenant. Or stated positively, he's calling them to draw near to God in true faith, to hold fast to their confession, and to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Which brings us to the theme, that Jesus is greater in every way. He's greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the Old Testament priests. Why is he greater than the Old Testament priests? Because Jesus offers a better sacrifice. He mediates a new covenant, and he secures our salvation for all eternity. 
Therefore, as believers, we're called and commanded to draw near to God in true faith, to hold fast to our confession, and to persevere even in the midst of persecution, stirring up one another, so doing this together, stirring up one another to love and good deeds, knowing that when we do, then we can be confident that we will receive the reward of entrance into God's eternal heavenly city. Just to drive that home, look at what the author says, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. So we're going to go through this in a second, but we're we're in chapter 10. So so what I'm going to show you is that after arguing for nine chapters that Jesus is greater, here's what he says. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, notice verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And number two, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Verse 24, number three. Let us continue, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, what day? The day of Christ's return, drawing near. So the day we receive the reward of being welcomed into God's eternal city. So there's number one, the background of Hebrews, that an unknown author wrote this sermon to urgently exhort Jewish believers in Rome to not return, to not turn away from their faith in Christ and revert back to Judaism, just to avoid being persecuted by embracing a religious system approved by the Roman authorities, but instead to wholeheartedly think rightly, knowing that Jesus is greater, so they might live rightly, drawing near to God in faith, holding fast to their confession, persevering in the midst of persecution, and stirring up one another to love and good deeds. Now let's talk details, meaning how does this get played out? How did, how did we get to chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews? Well, that's number two, theology of Hebrews. So as we transition, let me just say, you can flip back to chapter one. Let me just say as we transition, my goal this morning is to not overwhelm you. I'm not sure I'll be successful, but that's my goal as we walk through the book. You can see on my outline, if you look under the theology of Hebrews, three points. A, Jesus is greater in his person, Jesus is greater in his work, and Jesus is God's eternal salvation. So Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is greater in his person. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 4. Author says, long ago... And many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down. At the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he's number one, greater than the angels, which the author argues at length, quoting Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage, Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 89, Psalm 97, Psalm 110, and 2 Samuel chapter 7. What exactly is the role of angels? Well, they're called and commanded to worship God day and night, night and day. But in verse 6, the author quotes Psalm 97, and he says, let all God's angels worship him. Him being God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus is God and Jesus is greater than the angels. So then if that's true, how should we respond? Well, chapter 2 tells us, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift 
away. For since the message declared notice by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So there's your purpose. That since Jesus is greater than the angels, don't fall away. Don't neglect so great a salvation. But Jesus is not only greater than the angels, he's number two greater than Moses. If you would, flip forward to chapter 3, verse 1. The author says, therefore, holy brothers, by the way, notice that, right? He's writing to believers. This is repeated throughout the book. Therefore, holy brothers, believers, Jewish believers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Notice verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So again, there's the glorious truth that Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels and he's greater than Moses. But not just arguing theology for theology's sake, but for the purpose of calling these dear believers to persevere in the faith. Because again, he goes right back to application. Look at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So think rightly about Christ so you might live rightly for Christ. Because Jesus is greater than the angels, and Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, number three, Jesus is greater than the Old Testament high priests. Look at what the author says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. I know this is a little bit tricky, but the author is making a significant transition here in the book, Hebrews 4.14, at least as I've outlined it. If you flip over to the Hebrews overview outline, notice we've transitioned from Jesus is greater than Moses to Jesus is greater than the Old Testament priests. But the author's argument is now going to run all the way from Hebrews 4.14 to Hebrews 10.19. And that's because he's going to tell you exactly why Jesus is greater than the Old Testament high priests. Okay, flip back to your sermon outline. We've moved from A to B. Jesus is greater in his person to Jesus is greater in his work. And you see reason number one just as soon as we move from Hebrews 4.14 to 4.15, which says 4 or because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what's reason number one? Because Jesus is without sin. Jesus is a sinless high priest. And therefore, radically different than the Old Testament priests who offered sacrifices for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. Over and over and over and over again, day and night, night and day. Skip down to chapter 5, verse 3. It says, because of this, he, the Old Testament priest, is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. So the Old Testament priests are just as sinful as the people. That's why they have to offer the blood of bulls and goats, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. But that's not true for the Lord Jesus, because the Lord Jesus is without sin, which makes him an adequate substitute when he offers up himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and he sits down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
Which is why it's absolutely essential that number one, Jesus is a sinless high priest. But he's not just a sinless high priest. He's also number two, an eternal high priest. Look at how quickly the author goes there. Chapter five, verse five. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's that's Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And he says also in another place, Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who in the world is Melchizedek? Well, for starters, it's helpful to know that he only comes up three times in the whole Bible. Genesis 14, Psalm 10, Psalm 110, and the book of Hebrews. But in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, we're told that Abraham, so Father Abraham, this is referring back to Genesis chapter 14, gave 10% of all that he had to Melchizedek. We don't even know who Melchizedek is. But as it gets unfolded in Genesis chapter 14, we find out that he's the king of righteousness. He's also the king of peace. And he also appears to be eternal. No genealogy. The Levitical priesthood, in order to be a Levitical priesthood, you had to argue your genealogy. You had to say, here's who my dad is. I'm really a Levite, therefore I can be a priest. Melchizedek, no genealogy. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. And he's a person who appears to be eternal. And Abraham acknowledges Melchizedek's superiority by giving him a tenth of all that he has. So the author of Hebrews argues that since the Levitical priest came out of Abraham and Abraham blesses Melchizedek, that must make the priesthood, according to Melchizedek, a far greater in every way priesthood than the Levitical priesthood, including the reality that he's an eternal high priest, which enables him to save people eternally those who repent and believe in him. In fact, just look at chapter 7, verse 23. The author says, the former priests were many in number. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. He holds it eternally because he continues forever. Consequently, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives, eternally lives, to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all. When he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath which came later than the law appoints a son. God's son who has been made perfect forever. So since Jesus is a sinless high priest and since Jesus is an eternal high priest, he is able to save to the uttermost. So save for all eternity all those who repent and believe in him, which is incredible, isn't it? I mean, what a glorious salvation, and what an awesome argument already up to this point in the book of Hebrews. At this point, you really just expect the guy to close. If this is a sermon, that's fantastic. Wrap it up. Let's go to application now. You might be thinking that of me, (laughs) but that's not what he does. That's not what I'm going to do, right? He, he keeps going, and he keeps arguing that not only is Jesus a sinless priest and an eternal priest, but number three, that Jesus mediates a better covenant. So pick it up, chapter 8, verse 6. The author says, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. 
So Jesus mediates a better covenant since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant, for he finds fault with them when he says, now he quotes Jeremiah 31. He says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the new covenant. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now, do you understand? That's the glory of the new covenant. That as a result of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, the sinless, eternal priest offers a sinless, eternal sacrifice in order to pay for our sins eternally. He's merciful towards our iniquities. He remembers our sins no more. Because that's the issue with the old covenant. All it could ever do, all that the old covenant could ever do is highlight the problem of our sin. But it could never solve the problem of our sin. It could never offer real and lasting atonement. Forgiveness or reconciliation. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system, including the tabernacle, the altar, the holy of holies, the priests, and the sacrifices, including the blood of bulls and goats, was all pointing forward to the Lord Jesus. This accomplished Jack Squat. Its purpose was to point forward to Jesus. Do you understand that? The glory of the new covenant. Every single aspect of the new covenant is declaring that Jesus is better, that Christ is greater, that he is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, which is exactly what Hebrews 9.11 says. Look at Hebrews 9.11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, sinless to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 15, therefore, conclusion, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. How exactly does that happen? Number four, Jesus offers himself as a better sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26, but as it is, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age to do what? To put away sin. And how does he do that? By the sacrifice of himself. Drop down to chapter 10, verse 1. Here's the explanation. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins 
You're reminded every single year. Why? Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin, which means it was totally ineffective. Now look at verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over again, which can never take away sin. But verse 12, when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down. It is finished. It is done. To the world, salvation comes. He sat down. Where does he sit down? At the right hand of God the Father Almighty, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Which means that the only way to be fully forgiven of your sin, the only way to make full atonement for your iniquities is to put your faith in the one true, sinless, eternal high priest who mediates a better covenant and offers a once-for-all-time perfect sacrifice to pay for all your sins, past, present, and future so you can be forgiven, so you can be perfected, so you can be redeemed eternally, forever. So what's the author's point? What's the upshot of all that? Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater in every way. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament high priests. Why is he greater? In what specific ways? Well, he's greater because Jesus offers a better sacrifice. He mediates a new covenant, and he secures our salvation for all eternity, which is glorious, incredible, marvelous, but as I said earlier, it's not just theology for theology's sake. No, this, this is a sermon preached and proclaimed, written down and read in the gathering of the saints who are absolutely currently struggling with the trials they're experiencing and the persecution that they know is coming. So they're being tempted to abandon this glorious salvation, the new covenant for the old, the superior for the inferior, the real thing. They're looking forward to going back to the shadow. So the author is pleading with them, pleading with these dear believers to draw near to God in true faith, to hold fast to their confession and to stir one another up to love and good deeds, knowing knowing that when they do, they will receive the reward of God's eternal heavenly city. Which brings us to see, Jesus is God's eternal salvation. So just as soon as we have all of that great theology locked down in our minds, meaning we have right thinking about Jesus, then, and only then, Are we ready for right living for Jesus? That's exactly what the author does. Hebrews 10, 19, and 21. The author summarizes the right thinking about Jesus that he's been arguing since chapter 1, that Jesus is our great high priest and that Jesus offers a better sacrifice, namely himself for our salvation. And since that's true, verse 21, since we have a great high priest, since, verse 19, we have the blood of Christ, right thinking about Jesus, Now we're ready for right living for Jesus. And the author lists three very specific things, which I believe outlines the entire application section of Hebrews. Chapter 11, all the way to chapter 13. Three things, and he lists them right here. Chapter 10, verse 22. Look at the first one. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. That's number one. Draw near to God 
in faith. Number two, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. No wavering. Hold fast. Persevere. And look at what he says, number three, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So three things. But I want you to see that these three things are the application of Hebrews. Let me prove that to you. So number one, let us draw near in full assurance of faith. That's what he says. Now look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. Right? He's unpacking that main point. To draw near to God in faith, here's how he unpacks it. Hebrews 10, 39, the author says, but we are not those who shrink back and are, are destroyed, but those who have faith. Chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would, notice, draw near to God. Let us draw near to God in faith. So we must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of all those who seek him. What's the application to not just know about Jesus. You can have all the information about Jesus in the world. Maybe you grew up in a Sunday school. You memorized everything. You know what I mean by the Sunday school answers? You know them. You know them. Jesus. Yeah. What's the answer to this? Jesus. Jesus. What's the answer to that? Jesus. What's the answer to this one? God. That one. Salvation. But then back. What's this one? Jesus, I got him. I got him. But it's not just knowing about Jesus. It's about putting your faith in Jesus. Those are different. Oh, I appealed to you this morning. I don't care what your resume says. Hey, here's my church attendance resume. I grew up in the local church. My dad was a pastor. I don't care. I mean, you, you don't have to prove anything to me. It's not between me and you. It's between you and God. But that's not what gets you into heaven. It's not knowing about Jesus. It's about putting your faith in Jesus. Because Jesus is greater. It's greater than anything. It's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the high priest. He is the one and only sinless high priest who mediates a better covenant, offers himself as the better sacrifice so that he can secure your salvation. Jesus is greater. What does the author say? Put your faith in Jesus. He's better. Don't put your faith in lesser things, inferior things, certainly not the shadow of things, And if you don't know what that looks like, what does he do? Well, he gives you some examples, doesn't he? That's the hall of faith. Hey, you don't know what it looks like to put your faith in Jesus and to persevere in the midst of difficulty? Hey, here's some examples. Chapter 11, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sarah, Joseph, and Moses. Rahab, Gideon, and Samson. Verse 13, look at what he says. These all died. How? How did they die? In faith. They died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. That's how you should live. Verse 16, for they desired a better country. This is not my home. I'm a stranger. I'm an exile. They desired a better country, that is. What kind of country? A heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared for them an eternal heavenly city. Here's the question. Is your faith in Jesus? Or is it in other things? 
I just want to tell you, if you snap back at me, Jesus. Okay, did you learn that in Sunday school? Oh, I appeal to you. Do not snap back to that question. Ponder it. Think about it. Is my faith really in Jesus? Or is it in other things? Is it in my ability to look good? To be impressive? Or is it in Jesus? Is your faith in Jesus? Are you trusting in his finished work on the cross? Or are you neglecting this glorious salvation that the author of Hebrews is arguing so adamantly for? Let me just say, if you're tempted to abandon this glorious salvation, let me appeal to you to read the warning in chapter 10, verse 26. The author says to you, For if you go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, pause, let's just write in your Bibles, I just received the knowledge of the truth. Here's the glory of the gospel. Faith in Jesus, nothing else. Salvation of your souls. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. Verse 31, for it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Am I a hellfire and brimstone preacher? You bet I am. Because that's the warning of the Bible. You can pursue a preacher who loves to tickle your ears and tells you all is well. Or he can preach the Bible and say, be warned. Make sure your faith is in Jesus. Make sure that your hope, your trust, your confidence is in his finished work on the cross. And if it's not, then I appeal to you. Repent. Believe. Be saved. And have the hope of eternal life that only comes through the Lord Jesus. Which brings us to application number two. Let us hold fast to Christ and let us persevere, which is Hebrews 12. It's the whole chapter, Hebrews 12, second application. Look at how he starts. Verse 1, the author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run. How should we run? With endurance. With perseverance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured. He persevered. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is Hebrews 12 all about? It's about calling these dear believers to hold fast to their confession about Jesus. Look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and the protector, perfecter of your faith. Why do you need to keep your eyes on Jesus? So that you might persevere in the midst of persecution. That's what it means to run with endurance. That's what it means to look to him who has endured the cross so that you might persevere. And how do we do that? How do we persevere in the faith? Well, we persevere in the faith by putting off anything that hinders you from running the race of faith, which includes not only blatant sin. Of course, you should put off blatant sin, but you should put off every weight. So every other thing, that's not sin, 
This is blatant sin. You should put that off, but you should put off every other thing that's not sin. If it prevents you from running with endurance the race that is set before you. Which means not only bad things, but good things as well. So earthly treasures, put them off. Material possessions, put them off. Unhelpful relationships, put them off. So any encumbrance that prevents you from persevering in the faith, running the race that is set before you, put them off. And of course, that's going to be difficult. I understand that. It's going to be difficult. But so was the cross. So look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see how glorious that declaration is? Because that's the same thing that is true for you, dear believer. If you persevere, if you keep looking to Jesus, then one day you will receive the reward of entrance into God's eternal heavenly city where you will sit down and you will rest. My good and faithful servant, you're welcome in. Be seated. I've prepared a place for you. Now is the time to rest. How glorious is that truth? I'll tell you right now, I long for that day. This world is hard. Preston Seaman being on hospice care is hard. Things going on in this church are hard. But that day, rest. That day will be glorious when we will sit down and rest in his presence, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. How do you persevere now? You look to that day. Just like Jesus, the joy that was set before him. And how do we do that? Now look at your Bible. How do we do that? Do we do that alone? No. We do that together. We do that as a body of believers. Remember Hebrews 10:24. He said, "Let us stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting our gathering together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another." And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Application number three, stir up one another to love and good deeds, which is what Hebrews 13 is all about. The whole chapter. Look at verse one. The author says, let brotherly love continue. Stir up one another to love and good deeds. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among you. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Boy, in our culture of sexual immorality, grab a hold of that one. How do we do that? Together. We do that together. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. There's some practical advice. Verse 9, do not be led away by strange teachings. Do you see the pattern? This is what it looks like to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And how do we do that? Verse 14, why do we do that? Verse 14, because here we have no lasting city. But we're seeking the city that is to come. So we do this together as a congregation, as brothers and sisters in Christ, which includes elders, verse 17, who are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. You know how I summarize that? I would say the elders have a very clear job description. Here's what we're called to do. 
go to heaven and take as many of you with us as we can. That's our job description. I pray I would persevere. And then my desire is to faithfully preach the gospel, love you to the best of my ability, minister to you on your deathbed, make sure you make it all the way home to glory. That's Hebrews. That's Hebrews. Clearly, this is not theology for theology's sake. But right thinking about Jesus, so there might be right living for Jesus, specifically in the church. Because Jesus is greater in every way. Therefore, may we be like the original hearers. May we be like John Bunyan. Because we're heeding the application to draw near to God in true faith, to hold fast to our confession, even in the midst of persecution, even if that means being imprisoned and doing everything that we can to stir up one another to love and good deeds, knowing that when we do, we too will receive the reward of entering God's eternal heavenly city forever. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, I pray... I pray that we would hear the word this morning and that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. And I pray that the doing of the word would not be our own efforts for our own glory, but would be faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a persevering faith in the Lord Jesus so that we might endure whatever trials come our way. And Lord, I pray that we would do it together as a body of believers that loves the Lord our God and the Lord Jesus and one another. Give us grace to do that well for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.